All right, good morning, Village. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church. This morning, I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. Would you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16? Genesis chapter 16. Um, Have you ever cut someone out of your life? We're going to think back relationally, um, go back. Uh, I see a couple of you actually smirking and a couple of you going, oh, yes, why, yes, I have. Um, uh, In your community groups, one of the things I want to invite you to do is actually process this question together, um, obviously in a way that is appropriate without slander, but um, have you ever cut someone out of your life? Why? Um, maybe, uh, maybe they were just a terrible influence on your life. Maybe th- before you came to Christ, um, there were a whole bunch of people in your life that you should not have been surrounded with, and, and you realized that they were really just a terrible influence on you, and you needed them uh, gone. For some of you, here's my question, did they betray you? Uh, did they break trust? Did they, did they cross a line of loyalty where you said, you know what, I'm done, I'm done with you, I no longer trust you, I don't want you to be any part of my life. My question is, what was your deal breaker? What pushed you over the edge? What was your tipping point? What was the thing that they did where you just said, enough is enough. I'm done with you. I'm out. And we're not just talking about creating distance. I'm talking about the actual act of really cutting somebody out of your life. Um, I have personally been cut out of other people's lives. And there are some, uh, I have been cut out. Uh, There are some indicators of this. For example, avoidance, right? You call them and and, and they just don't seem to respond over and over and over again for a long period of time. Um, They're particularly absent, even even though I maybe have not talked to them in a while. But when I really need them in my pain, they're just gone. Like they're not there. Uh, they're, They're unusually absent when I need them the most. Some people, I've actually found very few, will actually have a fight with you where they will end the relationship and say, I'm done with you, I'm cutting you out. For most people, it's passive or passive-aggressive, it's subtle, it's slow, and it takes you a while to realize it. Now, I can't tell you how many times I sit uh, in counseling with somebody, and here's their question to me. They don't say it like this, but in different ways, here's what they're asking me. Has God cut me out? Um, Is what I did so bad that God is done with me. And so there's a handful of people where they have done some pretty terrible things, and they come in and they share with me what they've done, and they feel, because usually this is transference from other relationships in their life that have been conditional, and so because they have a history of being cut out of other people's lives, particularly and especially maybe a parent or a mentor, um, they ask, is God done with me? Is this the unforgivable sin if I cross the line, if I push God to the edge? There's a whole other category of people, by the way, um, who are experiencing incredible trauma or pain in their life. Uh, life has not gone like they've expected. There's a massive gap between their expectations and what God has permitted in their life. And they're asking the question, has God abandoned me? Has God forgot me? Has God upset with me? Because if he was upset with me, um, then this would make sense of why my life is like this. But if God really loved me, then he wouldn't be allowing these kind of things to happen to me. Now, many of you, you're thinking to yourself, I would never say those kind of things. I'm super mature. I'm super smart. But I'm telling you, I've listened to very, very mature, godly men and women make some very big mistakes and wonder if God is done with them. I I have walked people through incredible pain, and they have wondered, has God abandoned me to this? Did I do something to deserve this? And so this morning, actually, is just great news, by the way. This is like actually really positive, uh, encouraging. uh, Okay, love. I'm kidding. Uh, This is, I heard it as I was saying it. I was like, wow, I'm literally just regurgitating the Caleb theme song. Um, But actually, there's, there's there's a beautiful message and a very hard, hard story here. 
And, and the beautiful message is this. When you trust in Jesus Christ, when you trust in Jesus Christ, God covenants himself to you. He makes a sacred, unilateral, universal, unending, forever promise to be your God, to be faithful to you, to never give up on you. And he did this. He made this promise to you, being eternal and omniscient, knowing the past, present, and future, and all of the moronic and stupid things you were going to do for the rest of your life. He already knew them, and he decided to covenant himself to you anyways. And one of the greatest messages that we're going to learn from Genesis chapter 16 is that our God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God despite our moronic behavior, our stupid decisions, and our really, 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 really ridiculous habits and patterns. Our God is very, very, very good. Um, now, I, I want to turn your uh, attention to Genesis chapter 16 and create some context for you. In Genesis chapter 15, here's what happened. Um, God had made a series of promises to Abram. And Abram finally believed. In fact, Genesis 15, 6 says this. Abram believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Uh, The book of Romans chapter 4 looks back on this and says, this is the moment where Abram was justified, where he was saved, where he was forgiven. This is the moment where he actually trusted in God, and God responds in Genesis 15 to his belief by covenanting himself permanently and forever to Abram. But the covenant was a little bit unexpected because in a typical ancient Near Eastern covenant, um, two parties are supposed to walk arm in arm through the blood of cut animals. Uh, the walking through these animals was a reminder that should we violate the terms of the covenant, this would be our fate. What God did is he put Abram into a deep sleep and God walked through the animals alone. And what God was communicating to Abram and to all the people of the faith of Abram is that I will not only keep and give you the blessings, but I will take upon myself the repercussions of the curse. Should either of us fail this covenant, I will take upon myself all of the curses of this covenant. And so now if you're the narrator, if you're the author of the book of Genesis and the hero of the Jewish faith, this great, great man of faith, the patriarch of Israel, finally gets saved, what would be the first story that you would tell about his life? Like typically you would tell a story of moral victory, of military victory, political victory. Like somehow what you would do is you would take this hero of your nation and you would elevate him and tell stories of wonder and how awesome he is. And in fact, here's what actually happens. Uh, The author of Genesis does the complete opposite. The first story he tells is a story of utter and complete failure. Um, In fact, um, the, the covenant faithfulness of God in this story is going to be pushed to its limits. Because Abram is going to make a decision so stupid that God would have every right to abandon him and to cut him out once and for all and forever. And you're going to see this story, and it's going to be very frustrating for you to watch. Now, point number one in your notes, uh, if you're taking notes, is would God cut me out? Would God cut me out? How far can I push God until he'll give up on me? Uh, Chapter 16, verse 1 says this. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now, in case you're newer to the Bible, um, eventually Sarai becomes who? Sarah, Abram becomes Abraham. Awesome. Now, as we look at this simple part of verse one, I want to answer a few questions. Number one, how many years into the story of Abram are we? And so in Genesis 12, 13, and 14, Abram's around 75, 76 years old. Um, right now, he seems to be around 85 years old, and the best guess is that Sarai is somewhere in that general age frame. My second question is this. What is Sarai 
No. Now, ladies, could you imagine if God made a whole series of promises, but he didn't tell them to you directly. He told them to your husband, and you had to get all that information from him. You're really crossing your fingers, hoping Abram is a very, very clear communicator. History is not on his side. And so um, all you know is what Abram told you. And so far, you've got this story. Um, oh, yeah, God told us to leave everything, leave everyone behind, go to a promised land. And, and by the way, I know you're like really old, and I'm really old, but we're going to have a kid. And, and, and you'd expect that this would be hard for Sarai to believe, but it seems that to a degree she believed the promise. Question number three, what are her options? As far as I can see, Sarai has two options. Option number one is you wait on God. You wait on God to fulfill his promise. Now, uh, one of the things I want you to do is empathize with Sarai in this text, because um, when you talk about barrenness and infertility, this is one of the deepest pain points for any woman who has experienced this. And so what essentially God is doing is arousing all of this pain inside of her. And you can understand why she was skeptical of this promise. But option, option number one is I wait on Yahweh to fulfill his promise. Um, but option number two, there was a legal social option that probably many of you are unfamiliar with. And so the legal social option would go like this. Um, there was a social obligation upon a wife who was barren to provide an heir for her husband. Now, ladies, aren't you so glad you don't live in the ancient Near East? So the social obligation is that you are required to figure out a way to get your husband an heir. And there was a legal, socially accepted method by which this could be done. So if you had the opportunity to have a uh, servant or slave, now you have to take out of your brain all the notions you have of 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st century slavery. Okay, this is a very different system of slavery. But if you had a servant or a slave... Here's what you were permitted to do. Um, you were permitted for one night to give this woman over to your husband. You would time this out so that ideally she would conceive. Uh, the woman would bear his child, and then what would happen after 40 weeks or so is that when the child is born, the child would be taken from this woman, the birth mother, and put into the arms of the wife so that the birth mother functionally would have no authority over this baby. Uh, the birth mother uh, would not be able to name this baby, but the actual wife would be able to name this baby. It was a very common practice, and so this is what you would expect an option on the table for Sarai to be. Let's watch this unfold. It says this, uh, continuing in verse 1, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, quote, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Okay, ladies, I don't know about you, but are you wondering why, that, why, why the heck she's doing this? Like, I'm wondering what girl are you doing right now? I came up with the four, four options. I don't know which one is true, but I think each one of these um, makes sense of what's actually happening culturally, socially, relationally, and spiritually at the time. Uh, option number one, this is just her social obligation. She has no other option without being ruined socially but to do this. It actually reminds me of a 15-year-old girl who gets pregnant, and she feels the weight of the social obligation to get an abortion. There's just no other option, and because it's legal, it is a viable reality for you. That, that's, one that's one option. It's a social obligation. Option number two, maybe, and this wouldn't surprise me given what we know of Abram's character up to, up to this point, maybe Abram spent the last 10 years pressuring her. 
you do realize I need an heir. It is your social obligation to allow me to do this. And given the fact that he gave his wife over to Pharaoh in the first place, this isn't a man of great moral integrity at this point, so that I wouldn't put it past him here. Maybe she was desperate. Um, again, uh, I, I have found that one of the most desperate moments for a woman is infertility. People will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars just to try to have a baby. And I could imagine in this moment of desperation, she feels like this is the only option, and this is not something done maybe out of a desire to make a great decision, but, but she's just so desperate to have a child and to have the shame of her barrenness erased from her life. And so this is a viable option. Option number four is maybe she's really crafty. Like maybe she actually doesn't like Abram a lot. Maybe because Abram did a bunch of dumb things to her. He's, she's like, you know what? This guy's going to die soon enough, and I need someone to take care of me. And so maybe this was just a really crafty option for her to get taken care of should Abram die. Now, I want to just take a moment. I want to back out of this for a second because um, I want to talk to moms and dads, grandparents, anybody mentoring somebody that is not spiritually mature. I cannot tell you how many spiritually immature people justify behavior with this singular concept. If it's legal, it can't be that bad. Like the amount of people who will justify decisions and behaviors because the United States government sanctions it as legal is mind-numbing. Just because it's legal doesn't make it moral. And Sarah had every legal and social right to be able to do this, but it doesn't make it a good thing. And so actually, if you're going to start mentoring people and discipling people, this is a lie that you have to undo at a very young age because the amount of young people who want to use law to justify their behavior and call it moral, it's actually unbelievable. Let's go on back to the text. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Pop quiz. Who earlier in Genesis listened to the voice of their wife? Eve. Adam, right? Now, you might be thinking, Michael, are you chauvinist pig? Uh, the answer is no, because later in chapter 21, God does say to Abram, Abraham at that time, listen to your wife. So, uh, ladies, uh, gentlemen, is God telling uh, Abram that he's bad because he listens to his wife? No, that is not the case, right? That's not at all what's going on here. But uh, it's interesting because there is a subtle sub-narrative in the book of Genesis um, that you should pay attention to. And the sub-narrative is this, that ladies... You are the most influential man or man, woman <laughs> in your husband's life. And when you're not walking with God, um, you have the great potential to do great harm to him. Now, ladies, in case you think this is one-sided, gentlemen, um, you are the most influential person in your wife's life. And when you're not walking with God, you have a massive amount of potential to encourage her and cause her to walk into great harm. And so what you see is this initial, like she's not believing the promises of God. And this is not seen as a good thing here. Verse 3 says this, So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, his wife. We don't know how long he resisted or if he resisted at all. What we do know is that whatever's happening, Sarah is feeling the obligation, the weight, the propensity to be the initiator of this exchange. Verse 4 says, And he, Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived. I am in awe. I am in sheer and utter awe that every promise God gives to Abram, he sabotages. Throws him out the window. I'll do it my way. Every stinking promise. It's really irritating. 
And when you watch him, like if you're God, like this is very personal. Let me just, let me be clear. If you gave somebody one of the most important things to you in your life and you gave it as a gift to somebody else and they threw it in the trash, would you be offended? The answer is, of course you would. God is giving and promising Abraham some of the most unbelievable, meaningful, and personal things to himself. And Abram, at every corner with every promise, throws them in the trash, sabotages them. If anything is going to push God to the limits, this is going to be it. And then here's what it says. And when she, Hagar, saw that she, Hagar, had conceived, she, Hagar, we need to be clear because the she's can get confusing, looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarai. So the mistress is not Hagar. The mistress is Sarai. The servant is Hagar. And so here's, here's what happens. Um, there's this experience, and she finds out she's pregnant. And the moment she finds out she's pregnant, she looks with contempt and disdain on her mistress, Sarai. Why? Uh, I was trying to figure out, like, what would be going on in this woman's heart and her mind that would make her so angry at Sarai? I came up with two reasons. Number one, she's a victim. I'm not sure if you're putting the story of Hagar together yet. Uh, she came from Egypt. She was sold as a servant to an old man and an old wife. Some Jewish scholars even believe that Hagar was Pharaoh's daughter. You don't know the case, but that's surmising from Jewish history. Then, this young woman is forced to um, have sex with an older man, bear his child, and then give this child up and give it to another woman who already treats her like dirt. Like, you could understand why Hagar would see herself as a victim. If this happened to anyone in this room, this would actually be one of the most horrifying stories. Uh, You would get up and give a testimony about how you were trafficked, and this is what it looked like. Hagar was, uh, the, the concept of being a mother, of being a wife, of having a family was all taken from her. She's got nothing. Uh, The second reason for the contempt would be just a simple reality that I've watched over and over, and that's victims tend to victimize. Bullies have a higher propensity of bullying, do they not? People who are treated poorly have a higher propensity to treat other people poorly. The simplest way I could say it is hurt people hurt people, right? You see this everywhere. And so I think she's doing what is natural and what is normal and what is easy. In fact, um, as I read through this story, I mean, I like Abram, but he, annoy, he annoys me a lot. Sarai, she just gets very bitter. Hagar is the one that my heart goes out to the most throughout this story. Um, I actually want to help make sense of this from uh, a little excerpt from the book of Proverbs uh, in chapter 30, verses 21 to 23. Uh, and I have zero doubt in my mind that when the author of Proverbs wrote this, he wrote this with the story of Hagar and Sarai in his mind. Here's what he says. Under three things... The earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. Here's what he's, here's what he's saying. The, these are things that upset the whole social, moral, familial um, um, order of society. That uh, The world does not better when these things happen, but it, it's worse. Like, these are things that should just never, ever, ever happen because it upsets everything that is normal and functioning well. Okay? Here's the first one. A slave when he becomes a king. Why? Because he's promoted way beyond his level of competence. Let me give you a modern-day illustration that would make sense of this. If you find somebody who is broke and homeless, and they win the lottery, and they win a half a billion dollars, how much money are they going to have left in 10 years? Zero. Why? 
because they are not equipped and competent to handle that level of weight. And so the author of Proverbs looks at this and says, one of the worst things you could ever do is take a slave and make him a king. He goes on. And he says this, and a fool when he's filled with food. When you take an idiot and you fill him with food and drink, what does he become? A bigger idiot, right? It's unbelievable. And the world is not made to handle this kind of stuff. It upsets the whole order of things, right? And then we get number three. This is really interesting, by the way. An unloved woman, when she gets a husband, you find me an unloved woman who gets a husband, I'll find you a woman who will never feel loved. You, uh, she will always complain. It's never enough. He's never good enough. He could be the most gracious, kind, loving husband on the planet. An unloved woman will never be loved well enough. Now, number four. And a maidservant, when she displaces her mistress. So here's, here's what would happen. Uh, the mistress says to her husband, take my maidservant and have a child through her. Uh, the maid uh, servant gets pregnant. And then here's what happens. The husband transfers his affections from the wife to the maidservant and displaces her relationally and then ultimately socially. Like this is a, a, a turnover of things that the social order of life and the family unit cannot handle, let alone the maidservant, because the maidservant is not equipped to deal with this kind of displacement. Inevitably, the maidservant turns on the mistress, which is exactly what happens. We go back to Genesis chapter 16, verse 5. I want to be clear. Sarai has had it. Abram has actually taken his affections, displaced Sarai, and put Hagar as the chief of his love. Like, this is frustrating. You can understand this. Look what Sarai says to him in verse 5. May the wrong done to me be on you. This woman is rubbing it in. You had the audacity, the audacity, when I have been your faithful wife for decade after decade after decade to replace me with her, to shame me publicly, to ruin me socially, goes on. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? And how many of you can relate to Sarah, not personally, like empathetically, you can look at this and say, I totally get it. I would be so angry. That is nice compared to what most of you would actually have to say to your husbands. I did what was legal and right. I mean, moral, no, but that doesn't really seem to matter in their case. I imagine she looks at him and just says, do you understand the longest night of my life was the night when I gave her to you? Deep down inside, I was hoping you would say no, and you went through with it anyways. You're supposed to be the man of faith. I thought you believed in the promise. It's interesting. You go later in the book of Genesis, I believe, chapter 21. Uh, Abram is, at the time, Abraham is going to be, is so in love with Hagar and, and so satisfied with Ishmael that when the Lord promises him another son through Sarah called Isaac, he actually says to the Lord something like, keep him, I don't want him, I'm happy with Ishmael. Now, could you imagine how irritated and aggravated Sarai has to be at all of this? To the point, to the point where ultimately Abram has to send her into the desert again for the second time to get away from all this. It's crazy. Here's what verse 6 says. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you 
please. I'm convinced uh, Abram is an Enneagram 9. Uh, for those of you who don't know personality profiles, it means he's a peacemaker. He'll do whatever he can just to keep the peace. And he's like, uh, I made a big mistake. Uh, do whatever you want. Uh, whatever's going to make this thing happy. We're all good, right? Like, that's... So she responds. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her. Can we just rise above the text for a moment? Can we get out of the story and like start flying over and looking at this? Why is everyone acting so dumb in this story? That's what you should be asking. There's not a wise human being in this story. And this is the family that God is like, I'm going to covenant myself with you for all eternity. You're the people who are going to create the Jewish nation and the Messiah, and you're going to transform the world. This is the first family. Take a look, people. This is it. Why? Let me, let me just break down why. Because the further the distance between the promise and our current reality, doubt grows. And in doubt, doubt enables us to do dumb things. You show me someone who is doubting, uh, I will almost always show you somebody who small way after small way after small way begins to walk away from the people of God, worship of God, disciplines of God, start making small, progressively larger decisions that are not wise and don't bring God glory because there's something that happens internally in our psyche that says, if I'm doubting, I'm now justified to do dumb things. Now, I don't say this with any level of condemnation because I might be one of the biggest doubters in the room. But I can look back at so many of my ridiculous decisions and say they were rooted in doubt. And doubt has a weird psychological ability to enable us to do really dumb things. We all have to just own that. Look in the mirror and say, in seasons of doubt, we are capable of great stupidity. And we need to be very cautious Because doubt is not the worst thing in the world. Jesus can handle your doubt. He can handle your questions. The challenge, though, is the longer the distance, the greater the distance between its promise and our current reality, the greater doubt grows. And those are some of the most dangerous seasons. Now, the story is going to shift. It's going to move from Sarai to Hagar. It's going to take a very dramatic shift right now. And here's the question that I'm wondering. What could Abram do that would actually get God to cut him out. We're going to wait and answer that at the end. Point number two in your notes. Could God forget about me? Could God forget about me? Verse six, verse six says this. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she, Hagar, fled from her, Sarah. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to sure. I want you to notice a few things. Number one, what did Hagar do when things got difficult? She fled. Do you know what the name Hagar means? Flight. Notice, notice number two. Where is she going? You're probably not familiar with ancient Near Eastern maps, so let me tell you. She is on her way back to Egypt, and she's really close. She is going home with her tail between her legs. She's pregnant. She's ashamed. She's embarrassed. She was sold as a servant, and her social obligation was to do that well. She's going back, a rebel, a refugee, fleeing from her legal obligations to Abram. Where was she? She was in the wilderness, which is already, if you are alone, male or female, is one of the most dangerous places you could possibly be, let alone to be a single, pregnant female in the wilderness. This girl's life is in sincere danger. But then I want you to notice who shows up. The angel of the Lord. We've said this a hundred times, but I want to make sure you're crystal clear on who the angel of the Lord is. The angel of the Lord is Jesus. 
Any time in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, God takes bodily form. Is it the Father, the Son, or the Spirit? It's the Son, always. The Father doesn't take bodily form. The Spirit doesn't take bodily form. The Son does. Whenever God is incarnate, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. It's Jesus. So Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Who was he walking with? His name is? Jesus. And, and so here's what happens. The angel of the Lord shows up uh, periodically throughout the Old Testament. And the angel, of the, Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord declares himself regularly to be God and to do the things that only God can do. He speaks as God, not for God. The angel of the Lord is clearly the full presence of God. And you're going to watch this even more clearly play itself out here. And he, Jesus, says to Hagar, Hagar, servant of Sarai. Like imagine this guy pops out of nowhere in the middle of the wilderness. And he's like, I know your name. I know where you're from. No, this is weird. I mean, at some level. Where have you come from and where are you going? So here's just a little tip for you, okay? If you ever meet Jesus face to face and he asks you a question, the question's never about the question. The question is always deeper. If he's like, do you have food to eat? It's never about food. It's always about something else. That's, I love his questions. And he knows where she, who she is. He knows where she's come from. He knows where she's going. And she says this, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai, duh. And the angel of the Lord, Jesus, said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Like, you, you cannot read modern culture and modern movements into this text and get upset with Jesus here. He is telling her to do the impossibly difficult thing. Go back, fulfill your duties, This is Abram's son. It's not just your son. It's his son as well. And there's an implicit promise here, which is, I'm going to take care of you. But you need to stop running. Your name means flight. Stop that. Go home. Fulfill your duties, and I will take care of you. And then he makes some unbelievable promises. He says in verse 10, The angel of the Lord also said to her, I, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for." Multitude. Even notice that now the angel of the Lord is speaking as God, I, Bishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means God will hear. I love this moment because on one level you think who's going to be the hero of the story. Um, and when you look at all the descendants of Hagar, they're pretty bad people who are always and regularly seem to be attacking the people of God. Like in my brain, I have this notion that Hagar must not have been that great. But you know who Jesus never showed up to? Sarai. Like there is something very, very special about this woman that Jesus personally and tenderly ministers to her heart, her body, and her soul. Like, by the way, this isn't the last time she's going to be found in the wilderness and Jesus is going to show up. This is the, the first of two times. Like, this girl had a very unique, meaningful, and beautiful relationship with Jesus. And every time she calls her son's name, she goes back to Abram and probably has to deal with the oppression and the harshness of Sarai, the embarrassment of leaving and then having to come back, the social consequences, plausibly even giving up her child to be raised by this terrible woman, Sarai, from her perspective. And every time the name Ishmael comes out of her mouth, here's what she remembers. The Lord sees my affliction and my pain. For the rest of her life, she's going to be given a palpable reminder that the Lord sees every piece of affliction she's going through. Now, if I'm, if, if I'm Hagar, here's what I'm wondering. Why did you wait until I almost got to Egypt to show up? 
Do you ever feel like Jesus, in your most worst moments, never shows up on time? Right? He's always a little bit late. But then you look back and you see he's actually perfectly on time because he's a total genius. Verse 12. He carries on and starts describing the nature of Ishmael. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And this is landing in two ways. One good and one not good. One, he's going to be free. Unlike you, who are, you're enslaved to this whole world. Um, he's going to be free. But wild donkeys, especially in the wilderness, are uncontrollable, volatile, and violent animals. And again, this is just par for the course of all of Ishmael's ancestors, always at war, killing each other and killing everyone. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Here's the name she's given God. This is the first encounter she has with God. God ministers to her, meets her in her darkest moment, makes promises to her, and then here's what she says. She says, this is his name. Uh, You are a God of seeing. That's the name she actually gives God, the one who sees me. That's her name for God. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the, the well was called Ba'er Lahairoi, meaning the well of the living one who sees me. Like if you are in any kind of position of relationship in your life, where you are the oppressed or the victim, this is where the Lord speaks personally and directly to your heart. And here's what he says. I see you. And the Lord's ability to minister beautifully and tenderly to these oppressed souls is so meaningful. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 15 to 21, I encourage you to read that because it's the second occasion where Jesus himself personally shows up in the wilderness and ministers to Hagar again. Chapter 16 ends like this. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So what? I want to close with three questions. Question number one. How dumb does Abram need to be before God will cut him out? What I love about chapter 16 is you have to know its placement in Genesis. In chapter 15, Abram trusts God, is justified, and God responds by making a covenant with him. Chapter 17, God reiterates, ratifies with a sign, the covenant, the sign of circumcision, the covenant again. What happens between these two chapters is this. And what you would expect is that after chapter 16, that God would come down to Abram and say, I am done with you. You're a moron. You literally sabotage everything. You, I cannot leave the Messiah in your hands. Like, you're just going to mess it all up. He doesn't do that. When Abram messes up, God doubles down. And God reaffirms his commitment to him and says, basically, there is nothing you could do, might do, or will do that will cause me to cut you out. You're stuck with me, and I am covenanting myself to you permanently and forever, to the point where I will even take upon myself your covenant violations. There is nothing you can do that will cause me to cut you out. Question number two, did God forget about Hagar? No. He waited way longer than I'm comfortable with. He he let a whole bunch of things happen. Here's what I am confident of. 
I'm confident that if Hagar could stand right here and have a conversation with you, Village Church, she would look at you and say, God is a genius. And I wouldn't change a thing. And I'm here to testify to the faithful, covenant-keeping nature of our God. I, I have a hunch she would get up and she would declare the nature and character of God and defend him to the hilt. Even though many of us want to look at this story and use it as a justification to say, look, see, I can't trust you. You didn't fix it from the very beginning. And she would say, I'm the one who went through this. Don't use my story to justify your anger. I'm standing here today to testify to you that our God is a good and faithful God who ministers to us in our deepest affliction. Finally, question number three. Other than God, because there's some narcissists in the room, I'm sure, who do you most identify with in this narrative? So let me just bring you into the, into the mind of, a, of, of Moses as he's penning these words and telling these stories. As Americans, we're wired to look at the text from a distance and just kind of observe the characters. And we're very other than, and we're evaluating whether or not we like things and whether or not we want to even continue to read. And, and so we have all these weird habits and patterns when we look at Old Testament narrative. But the, the narrative is written so that we would not look down on the text, but that we would immerse ourselves inside the text. Uh, I almost imagine this, uh, this uh, cartoon, you know, where you're, you see these kids reading a book. I forget what it's called, but then they go into the story, right? Uh, you guys remember what that name of that cartoon is? Somebody help me here. No, 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 it's a new one. Anyway, so, but these kids, uh, they, they jump into the story and they become a part of the story. But this is the very nature of how Old Testament narrative is supposed to be written. So many of us read and we just judge the characters. And yet the question that the authors of, of Hebrew narrative want you to be asking is not, are you better than the characters? The question is, who do you most identify with? And what does that mean about your God? And what does that mean about your life? And so let me, let me ask you, who do you most identify with? Uh, for some of you, you probably identify with, with Abram. God has been so good to you and blessed you with so much. And, and yet regularly you have thrown these things away and God keeps coming back to you and saying, let me give you another chance. Let me give you another chance. God makes these promises and, and you trust him for a while, but the greater the time between the promise and your current reality exists, you start to doubt God. And that, that gap of doubt, then you ultimately start walking away from God and abandoning him. Maybe for some of you, you need to be reminded today that our God is a covenant-keeping, faithful God, and as dumb and ridiculous and as moronic as we might be, he will be faithful to his covenant. Um, some of you in this room, you might actually identify with Sarai. She is a bitter, scorned woman. She is a hurt woman, and you don't have to be a woman to be able to identify with her. She's been let down, and she has been very, 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 very bitter throughout this part of her life. She's not trusting God, and she's causing her husband to sin. Uh, some of you, you know the promises of God, but you're not just struggling in the distance. You're actually bitter and you're angry because God has let you down. And the Lord breaks into your story and says very simply this, I am good and holy and I'm the covenant-keeping faithful God. And your bitterness has no place in here. And you're called, as you see the bitterness in her, you're called to repent of your own because you realize how unbecoming it is of the people of God. There's a third person here I think is really important and uh, I find myself empathizing and just being so, uh, I just, uh, compassionate toward her more than anyone else and that's Hagar. You have this pagan Egyptian servant, everything taken from her and uh, she is the epitome of abuse victim. She's the epitome of somebody who was taken advantage of and walked all over and, 
And uh, it's not uncommon that in a church we have many, many men and women uh, who experience this. And your question is, can I even trust a God who would have allowed that to happen to me? Those are heavy, huge, profoundly difficult, weighty questions. And yet I want to I say to you that I think if Hagar could stand up here, she would say that God sees her, God redeemed her pain, and God is incredibly faithful to her. For some of you, you've used the pain as a reason to be angry at God, and yet I think what Hagar tells us is that Jesus actually wants to enter into your pain rather than have it, you use it as an excuse to push him away. He's not afraid of it. He can handle it. He can engage it. And for some of you today, you may be a Hagar where you need to actually come back to Jesus, and you need to trust him. And one of the hardest things to trust Jesus with is pain. It just is. And so I'm not sure who you are or where you're at in this story, but I do know this. Genesis 16 isn't here so you can be smarter. It's not here so you can be engaged or interested in the story. Uh, It's here to validate the covenant faithfulness of our God. And it's here to, to show you that you are in this story. And the question is, which person are you? And then as you realize who you are, where do you land? You land here. Despite me, despite my faithlessness, despite my struggles, despite all my past, present, and future moronic behavior, when the Lord covenants to somebody because they place their faith in Jesus, that is the most unchangeable, secure, safe part of our life. I love that. He's bigger than our doubts, our dumbness, our stupidity, our moronic behavior, and everything in between. And so it's in that spirit I want to take a moment. I want to pray for you, and then we're going to celebrate communion and be reminded Uh, palpably, measurably, that God actually historically took upon himself the covenant curse. Let's pray together. Father, love you and thank you for what history and our own personal stories and what the word of God declares that you, you don't play by our rules, you don't come in our time frames, but you, you are faithful and righteous and good Thank you for the way you are patient with Abram. Most of us in this room would have given up on him in chapter 13, but not you. I thank you for your patience with Sarai. And that many years later, you actually come through for her and you fulfill your promise to her despite her lack of belief. God, I thank you for Hagar. I thank you for your attentiveness to the broken your deep concern for her and the way you tenderly care for her. Lord, I have a hunch there's many in this room who just need to see that side of you. And as we turn our hearts to communion, as we remind ourselves of what you've done, thank you for Jesus. You fulfilled your promise to Abraham that you would take upon yourself his curse on yourself. Thank you that Jesus bore on his body, soul, and emotions the weight of the curse of a broken covenant. We love you, and we are grateful. We pray this and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.